welcome to episode two of the Harry Potter Lexicon podcast. My name is Steve Vanderark. I'm the creator and editor-in-chief of the Harry Potter Lexicon website. And before we start wandering through Harry Potter canon, we do need to talk about Pottermore. Um, I've been reading a lot of things online. I've been reading uh, the Twitter feed and a lot of the comments that people have been making. And something that strikes me is I think so many people are missing the whole point. Um, I see notes that it's going to be an online gaming site or... Um, complaining that it's just uh, ebook sales trying to make money and things like this. I don't think that's correct at all. Um, the most important aspect, as I'm looking at the, there's a video, for example, of the uh, of the site in use, and I think we take Joe at her word, this site is mostly about reading the books. It's not about the films. It's not about selling things. Um, it's about reading. If you take a look at it, and I'll, I'll link the uh, the video onto the show notes um, on the on the show notes page. But I mean, we're talking about a, a, an opportunity to kind of move through the books in sequence, uh, what they call moments, which are not the same as chapters. They're kind of situations or set pieces, whatever you want to call them. And as you move through, you have the opportunity to explore a little bit more of, uh, of background information about the characters and things. Um, the The example was looking at the moment of the cupboard under the stairs and um, in that situation, you could click on something to read more about the Dursleys, and it told uh, about the background of how they met and things like this. Um, and, and also, there was another little window in there talking about where the names came from. I mean, this is a, this is gold. This is fantastic stuff. And that has nothing to do with selling books. It has nothing to do with, with uh, J.K. Rowling trying to make a buck or anything like that. As a matter of fact, as she's pointed out, this is free. You, you don't have to buy anything to do this. But... Um, I think it's important to remember something, and this is coming from my own um, experience as a as a person who ran a Harry Potter website for many years. When we first started creating our websites back in the late 90s, uh, the lexicon, I was starting to put it together in 1999, we were all, all of us website people were a little bit living in fear. Uh, Warner Brothers had tried shutting down, or Warner Brothers or someone, whoever was, uh, was doing this at the time, uh, was shutting down websites. They were they were actively looking for people who were putting the words Harry Potter in the title of their sites, for example, and and sending uh, cease and desist letters and things. And when that changed was when Joe started her own website. And I, and you know I'm not just kind of talking f- from the outside in here. I mean I was one of these website. Um, people at the time, and and I noticed, and I'm sure other website people would say the same thing, I noticed a distinct change in the in the attitude toward fan sites when, uh, when Rowling started her own site, when she put the fan site awards on there. Um, all of a sudden, I had uh, people from Warner Brothers that contacted me and kind of let me know that... Uh, uh, who to talk to if I needed anything or if I needed to get permissions and things. I'd already gotten permissions from Warner Brothers at that time uh, and from other copyright holders to use the material that I was using. But uh, before that, we didn't have anyone. I mean, I had a specific person that I was told I could contact. Uh, the whole climate changed at that point. And you have to remember that we're, we're talking about a time when, when these major copyright holders really didn't know what to do with fan interest online they didn't they weren't sure what to uh, what to make of all of this and how they were supposed to protect their copyright while they also allowed uh, fans to kind of play in that playground um, and, and really I think 
if, if you look at what happened, Joe was really instrumental in creating a, an atmosphere of support and of kind of mutual enjoyment and things like this. And I think we need to give her credit for that and also to say, you know, she is still that same person. She is not, she wasn't at that time uh, just out to make a buck, and I, I, she still isn't. That's just not who she is. And she has always been first and foremost somebody who wants to protect the reading experience and i think that's exactly what we see if, if you watch that that uh, video you really can see uh, what i'm talking about and something that i noticed is that the the picture that was on the screen for the cupboard under the stairs moment was not a scene from the film it wasn't the film set reproduced in fact it's it's reversed it's definitely not the film and all I'm saying is that she's not just trying to tie in with the movie. She's not just trying to do anything except give readers a new opportunity to explore the books. So I think that's really important to remember as we get excited about this. Something else that struck me is I noticed a number of people really thinking that the whole um, announcement thing was... Uh, I, I saw the word anticlimactic, for example. Now, you know, think about the way the books were revealed. I mean, first we would get this sort of hint that something was coming. Um, some, uh, toward the end, it was on Joe's website. There'd be a coming soon. Um, all we got was an announcement that a book was coming. And then we would get teasers, uh, with, and specifically I'm thinking of cover art. And I don't know, I, I was one of these people who was looking at that cover art and trying to analyze every little thing. I remember doing this all the way back with Goblet of Fire and trying to figure out what the large ant-like creature was on the Mary Grand Prix cover and things like this. I mean, this is the same kind of sequence that, that we've always been going through when something new and big was coming along from, from rolling. And I think to 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 think of it as anticlimactic, I think is just all I say is just wait, just wait and see what's coming because everything that I see is something I just cannot cannot wait. I'm hoping whatever the the way is to be able to be an early user of this uh, coming up on July 31. I certainly hope that I can be one of those people because I can't wait to dive into this and find out more information. Um, okay, let's let's chug ahead. Let's start talking a little bit about the Harry Potter canon. Um, as I said before, I'm kind of started by looking at the, the Lexicon book as a, as a kind of a reference. That was one of the things that I was looking at, which kind of gave me the idea to do this podcast. And, you know, last time I started talking about the letter A, started with Abbott. But, you know, before that, there's a whole list of sources of information. And a couple of them I wanted to mention. One in particular is the one that's listed in the lexicon as um, YIL. And the reason that I'm bringing that up is because I get a lot of email from people saying, what is YIL? Um, and that is a, the reference is to um, a television special, which is called J.K. Rowling, A Year in the Life, which was on ITV. Um, this was uh, uh, a wonderful look at J.K. Rowling, kind of back at her life, at her kind of her process of writing. This is this is really an excellent piece. There wasn't a lot of new canon in it, but um, it was uh, th there was some information. Especially she drew the family tree of Harry and uh, other people, his friends, and so, which was a lot of information about their kids and things like this. And I think that's where a lot of the questions have come. Um, I'll put a link to the uh, to our notes about that from uh, on the show notes so if you're curious and want to find out more you can take a look at that another um, source that I wanted to talk about is the daily profit newsletters this is something which uh, uh, 
came kind of unexpectedly, uh, maybe about five or six years ago, I was contacted by a fan in Britain who asked if I was familiar with the Daily Prophets. And I said, well, yeah, that's that's the, the newspaper on uh, in the books. And she said, no, the, the actual Daily Prophet newsletters. And I had to admit that I didn't know what she was talking about. As it turns out, um, back in about 1998, um, Bloomsbury uh, decided to create an official Harry Potter fan club. And uh, it was only in Britain, and if you, you had to pay, I don't know, a couple pounds or something to join this. And one of the things that you got when you joined it was four issues of The Daily Prophet. And this was actually written by J.K. Rowling. And, uh, I mean, these things are are absolutely wonderful. They are um, f- full of her humor and her kind of tongue-in-cheek writing and things like this. The headline on the very first issue uh, is, Muggles Not as Stupid as We Think, says Ministry Report. And, uh, I mean, these are wonderful things. Unfortunately, they're not available uh, online or anything like that. Uh, after I got a hold of copies of this, I actually uh, contacted um, people at uh, Bloomsbury and, and uh, Rolling and so, and to find out whether these are things I could put online. And they asked that I would not because people had, in fact, paid for them, and so it uh, wouldn't be fair to have that uh, put online, which, of course, I, I absolutely uh, uh, agree with. So I, I do have a copy, but I can't put them online. But if you ever get a chance to look at these, I do carry them with me. So if you come to one of my talks, uh, you can take a look at them there. They're just a, a, a great read. Now, they were actually written in 1998, 1999. In fact, the cover date on the first one is July 31st, 1998. But the in terms of the storyline, in terms of the timeline of the books, they don't take place in 1998, which of course would be after... Uh, July 31, 1998, would be after the final battle in Book 7. So they actually uh, chronologically take place approximately at at Book 3, Prisoner of Azkaban. And you can tell, uh, if you read them, that there are things which are uh, kind of specific to that that time period in the stories. Also, there are some things which uh, clearly got changed as as Rowling did additional writing. For example, a lot of the uh, details of the Ministry of Magic were included for the first time in uh, Quidditch Through the Ages and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is 2000. And so um, some of that information is a little different in these newsletters. And it's always great to look at things, uh, interviews, uh, things that Rowling wrote, and keep in mind the chronological sequence of when these things came out because you get a picture of her process of the writing that she did and the, the creating that she did. Um, a lot of things, of course, she had created before she even published book number one, and we know that. But there are many things which developed as the books uh, were were published, were written. And so uh, it is very interesting to kind of see that progression as things got fleshed out in this world of hers. Um, so those are two of the sources that we use for the lexicon. Again, uh, the, everything in the, that uh, we include in the lexicon are things that we can verify are directly from J.K. Rowling. <laughs> when Pottermore comes uh, live, I know we're going to have a lot more information, uh, and so there's going to be a lot of uh, background, not only in the characters and things like this, but also part of her writing process that we're going to be learning about, which, again, just makes that site so exciting to, to look forward to. Um, so let's take a look at letter A. We were talking about Abbott, 
last time, and I, I looked back in there again, and I had a bunch of notes for the first episode from the letter A, and we barely got anywhere in it. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about, and this is something which is one of those things which, when we first read it, kind of like when, when Sirius is mentioned in book one, and it isn't until book three that you go, uh, oh, wait a minute, who... Who was that? I, I remember that. I was, <laughs> I was uh, out for coffee with uh, with uh, Nick Moline uh, last night, and he was saying that that uh, that when he was reading book three, he he realized that uh, Sirius Black had turned up earlier, and he was kind of going back in the books trying to find where that was. Um, a lot of us had that experience in book three, where where we suddenly realized that uh, all of this really tied together in a much more uh, thorough and exciting way than we'd realized. But I want to bring up, in, in the very first chapter of Prisoner of Azkaban, there's something called the Annual Daily Prophet Grand Prize Galleon Draw. And that's interesting. Uh, it's kind of a throwaway almost. But do you realize that that is one of the absolutely key events in the entire story? Because if, if Arthur Weasley had not won that money, then the Weasleys would not have gone to Egypt. And if they would not have gone to Egypt, there would have been no picture of them standing there uh, by in front of the pyramids or whatever. Uh, the picture that ended up in the Daily Prophet. And if that picture had not ended up in the Daily Prophet, Sirius Black would never have seen it, which means he never would have left uh, Escape from Azkaban to try to protect Harry, which means that basically the entire rest of the story, rest of the saga, would never have happened. It's it's just wild to think about the fact that this little throwaway story bit was actually, when you think about it, was actually a, a key moment in the uh, in the entire series. Um, and another thing, just interesting to note, is uh, it's he won a thousand galleons. What uh, we people have been trying to figure out how much a galleon is worth. Looking at Harry's wand, he paid, you know. A certain amount for that, and and J.K. Rowling actually said in the comic relief interview that she did that a galleon is worth about five pounds. Um, and by the way, if you go on CNN, they do have a galleon to to uh, a currency converter, and their value in there is wrong, so don't go with that. Uh, the value of a galleon, according to Rowling, is about five pounds. Now I happened to check before I started recording this, and the current value of uh, of a galleon in U.S. dollars is about one dollar and fifty nine cents. So Harry's wand costs just shy of eight dollars. Uh, or excuse me, just the, the value of a galleon was about $8, so Harry's wand is a little bit more than $50. That's what it is. So just so you know, if you need to buy a wand, you know how much you need to save up. But uh, uh, that's, it's just it's interesting to see how so many things in the books have meanings and, and, and not just the fact that, say, a name comes from a source, but just these little details that she puts in have much larger meanings to the story itself. Another thing, and this also comes up in the letter A, there are place names which are just, again, just throw away. They just, just kind of are tossed in there and we go charging along in the story, but they indicate something. Uh, two of them in the letter A, Assyria, which is where Great Uncle Algy uh, got the Mimbulus Mimbletonia. Assyria doesn't exist. Uh, the same is true for Abyssinia, which is... Uh, um, which is where the shrivel fig comes from. These are both places which, in at least for us muggles, are archaic. They are no longer names that we use for things. However, apparently the wizards do. Uh, the wizarding world has a different take on geography, you might say. Uh, another way to see this is if you look at the places where the, uh, the uh, professional Quidditch teams play. 
they're not in London, they're not in Birmingham, they're in Tuts Hill, which is this tiny little town, and happened to be a place where J.K. Rowling, uh, one of the places which she lived when she was growing up. But places like Portree, which is, you know, up, up in the Isle of Skye. Chudley, which is a little town in... in uh, in the West Country. Just these little tiny places are the locations of Quidditch teams. And you can say, well, of course, because they have to uh, they have to uh, um, be uh, away from the muggles, so they're going to be in small towns. But remember, they can apparate, so they don't absolutely have to be in any particular place um, in order to get to their, uh, their Quidditch pitches and things like this. But she uses these little towns, again, as a way to just remind us that the wizarding world is different it's skewed it's it's a it's it's you might say it's it exists in a slightly different um uh, version of reality than our world um you see this also too a lot especially in the first four books because books five six and seven there's a there's a marked difference in the tone um from from the first four there's a lot more whimsy in the first four and a lot more of these kinds of references but you'll notice that in the first four books you'll find a lot more of these references to to um, uh, to this sort of whimsical connections to what we in the Muggle world might consider folklore. So, for example, there will be a reference to... Well, this is from the Daily Prophets, actually. One of the headlines is the fact that the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster, which is a Kelpie, uh, is becoming a problem for the Ministry of Magic because they are the responsible for keeping it hidden. And uh, Kelpie, as Kelpies will, uh, keeps trying to be seen, and so Muggles keep spotting the Loch Ness monster. And what is the, what are the, what's the Ministry of Magic going to do about it? So this idea in in Rowling's geography of the Wizarding World is that all of the bits of the Wizarding World kind of coexist with the Muggle world, and every so often Muggles get a little glimpse of it. And the, those little glimpses are the things that we muggles think of as um, the Loch Ness Monster or the Bermuda Triangle, which comes up again in the Daily Prophets as a, as a destination for one of the terror tours uh, travel agency on, in uh, uh, Diagon Alley. And those are just examples, again, of the way that the, the things which we look at as being not real folklore, urban myths and legends and things are actually just little glimpses of the, of the wizarding world that, that we get. One more little tiny detail, um, which and this struck me as again as I'm looking through the letter A, and it's fun to do this because you get everything just sort of all thrown together, and and little details jump out, and you think, oh, oh, that's right. Um, one of the notice w- notes was for the anti-gravity mist, and that's the thing in the uh, Goblet of Fire where uh, where Harry is going through the maze, and of course for the for the film, they created a maze which actually closed in, which is a, a great visual picture of the danger of this thing. But when Rowling wrote it, she used a very different kind of an idea, and this was actual little magical traps, and one of them was this anti-gravity mist where Harry stepped into it, and suddenly up was down, and down was up, and is hanging, uh, so the sky was above him and things. I would have really liked to have seen that. There, there are things like this in the maze that that I wish we could have seen. I also would have loved to have seen uh, so many of the things that the incredibly imaginative things that that Rowling came up for uh, in the battle in the Ministry of Magic. Oh, I would have loved to have seen the 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 Death Eater with his head turned into a little baby head and things like this. And of course, when they're making the film, they've got to do everything much more compact, much shorter, and things in order to to keep the story going. But oh, I certainly wish we could have seen that. That would have been. That would have been amazing. So, um, 
move on to talk a little bit about, I think I mentioned last time I started reading Philosopher's Stone again from the very beginning, and just little things jumped out at me, and I, I brought up a couple of these mysteries, the things that, like the, the history of Quirrell, for example, and when exactly he was a, 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 a professor of what at Hogwarts and things. And a couple other things occurred to me. These aren't maybe quite as big, but um, the 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 what I consider in the first few chapters of the book is and something that I, li- I often refer to myself in my notes as the vision theme. And you'll notice as Harry uh, moves from being almost totally muggle to gradually sort of catching a glimpse of uh, of the wizarding world. He sees people in the street, but then um, more and more he starts to notice things, and he starts to see things. And this happens all the way through chapter 2, which is, of course, at the end of chapter 2 is when uh, uh, Hagrid, uh, or ch- through, when, when Hagrid appears, which is chapter 3, actually, w- at the end of that chapter. But what happens is Harry gradually starts to be able to see more and more. It's like, it's like his, his eyes get opened a little bit, step by step, through those chapters. Um, and it's interesting to see the way that that happens to the point where when he gets to Diagon Alley, he can actually see the leaky cauldron where he's pretty sure that nobody else can, just he can and, and Hagrid can. And it's fun when you're reading these things again, I've read them many, many times, but as I read them through and as I look at this, it's fun to see these and spot these little, uh, these little things which are, are uh, kind of the way that Rowling wrote it to kind of gradually have Harry see more and more and along with him we see more and more as we as we progress through um, another thing as you're reading as I'm reading this I, I constantly am thinking back to chapter 33 of the Deathly Hallows the, the, the prince's tale as we hear um, kind of Snape's history through all of this I know that in my talks um, I've repeatedly said that the Harry Potter series the entire set of seven books number one has to be seen as one long story um, the films break them up very much into one little tale and then another little tale, very episodic. And yeah, of course, that's inevitable. But in order to really understand, you need to look at the entire series as a set of seven books, but as a seven, almost seven chapters in one long story. And so if you look at that, uh, oh, and, and I was just going to say, I look at this as really being um, the, the story of Snape told through Harry's eyes. Snape is really the main character of the books. And so you, when you read chapter 33 of Deathly Hallows and you find out kind of where Snape's connections were through all of this, and then you go back and read Philosopher's Stone and you start from the beginning and you're reading all the way through and keeping in mind Snape's where, where Snape was, where, where Dumbledore was, their conversations, uh, what Snape's... Uh, 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 what was he actually doing? For example, the whole business with Quirrell and the troll that he led into the castle. Um, inside the story, we can look at that and we can say, uh, number one, how do you let a troll into a castle when you think about the the, uh, the magical protections and things on this? But okay, let's let's go with it because Quirrell obviously has access to things like hot dragon eggs too. So um, so we let uh, troll lets uh, Quirrell lets the troll in. The troll ends up on the third floor. Um, Snape heads for the third floor. What is Snape? What is he doing? Is he really checking on the stone? Is he really checking on Quirrell? When, when you know that his number one uh, assignment, if you will, is to guard Harry, what was he actually doing? And you think about too. I mean, there's little details like the fact that Harry runs into a group of Hufflepuffs on the stairs, where Hufflepuffs 
would never be on the stairs if they were going to their common room. Um, so there are little things like that, but that's just fun stuff to notice. A couple of the things, as we look at uh, Philosopher's Stone, another thing that I that is is the picture of two people that we see on broomsticks, for, I think just about for the only time that we see them, one of them being Hermione, who in the in the key room actually has to fly on a broomstick. That's about the only time we ever see her on a broom. Um, and and the other is Snape, who referees a Quidditch match of all things. I mean, can you imagine Alan Rickman on a broom? I, I just kind of have trouble putting that into my head. Uh, so Snape on a broomstick also. But, you know, interesting thing about that Quidditch match, um, the only Quidditch match in the entire series that doesn't start at 11 o'clock in the morning, that one starts so late in the day that an hour after the match, it's already getting dark. Well, think about this. The match ha- ended like within minutes, one of the fastest uh, you know, ever, I think. What if it had gone a normal Quidditch match link? They would have been playing in the dark. So th- why in the world did that particular Quidditch match start that late in the day? Well, uh, you know, again, we step outside the story and we say because at the end of it, uh, Rowling wanted Harry to be able to follow Snape and Quirrell into the forest and overhear what he overheard. Um, and so, but it's interesting because the the actual logic of the match inside the story is a little bit uh, a little bit odd to figure out. Um, basically, uh, reading *Philosopher's Stone* is you, reading it as part of the overall saga. There are so many parts of it which are just delightfully written. You can tell how much time she put into those uh, those various chapters and things. Um, but again, you have to see it in the light of Snape. What is he doing? What is Dumbledore doing? The big debate of whether Dumbledore was actually orchestrating everything. And um, I've had that conversation any number of times. And personally, I think he was. But uh, it's just so much fun to read that book again and put that into your mind and try to read from the Snape point of view instead of from the um, from the Harry point of view. Oh, and one last thing, speaking of point of view, that's probably, I think, and I'd have to go back and double check, but I think that's the only place, the only book, where we ever leave Harry's point of view during the during his story. I mean, we do, of course, in some chapters, go to completely different places. We go to, you know, the, the uh, mansion in Little Hangleton uh, when, at the beginning of... Um, of, of book four, we have we have places where where um, we go to uh, Snape's home at the beginning of book six, things like this. Obviously, uh, there are places where we completely leave Harry's point of view, but in uh, there are several places in book one where we actually, for a moment, are sitting with Ron and Hermione in the stands watching a Quidditch match instead of just being up uh, with Harry uh, and seeing everything through his eyes. And I think this is, I'd have to double check, but I think that this is the only place where that happens uh, is, is right here in, in so a couple of times in book one. Well, that's about it for this time around. Thanks for joining me in another ramble through Harry Potter canon. Um, if you want to contact me, you can email me at steve.lexicon at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at lexicon underscore steve. Um, the show notes for this will be on, again, the Harry Potter Lexicon website, which is www.hp-lexicon.org. And if you go to that slash podcast, you'll find the show notes and other information. Um, you'll see also on there that there's a link to the Facebook fan page if you want to go there and kind of engage in more conversation about these things. 
Thanks again to Harry and the Potters for letting me use their music for the show. Uh, just want to mention, too, if uh, I'm doing a couple of lectures coming up in uh, at the Grapevine, Texas uh, Library on July the 16th, 2011, if you're interested in coming out to that. One of them is the Welcome to the Wizarding World that I've done a number of times, which is where we explore some of the places in Britain, which are like the ones in the books. And then also, uh, I'm also going to do the one that I have about herbology, where we talk about the various magical plants in the Harry Potter world, uh, where they come from, and uh, sort of the background to that. So that'd be something fun to come to if you can. Again, that's July the 16th, 2011, right after the opening of Deathly Hallows Part 2, which is, of course, where we'll be the day before. Um, so again, this is Steve Vanderark. Thanks for listening. Explore the magic. <laughs>